Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Raymond Chung, gastroenterologist, transplant hepatologist, and director of the Liver Center at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston in the United States of America, as well as serving as a professor of medicine at the esteemed Harvard Medical School. Raymond completed his undergraduate degree at Harvard, then his medical degree from Yale University School of Medicine. He was a resident and clinical fellow at the Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and has been at Mass General for 20 years. He's won multiple awards, has held a number of professional medical societal positions across his career, including serving as president of the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases. In doing my research for this podcast, I was astonished to see that Ray has published almost 600 papers as author or co-author. I'm exhausted just saying it. In his spare time, Ray is a very active fellow, unsurprisingly, enjoying snowboarding, hiking, biking, and walking his three-year-old Bernadoodle, Mookie. I'm a huge fan of these lovely dogs. I had a golden doodle myself who was absolutely adorable. So welcome to the podcast, Professor Raymond Chung. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for having me. And, and is it Mookie or Mookie or... <laughs> that Mookie would be would be but but I think any any pronunciation will work. Where does the where does the name come from? He was actually named after a, a former member of the Boston Red Sox named Mookie Betts. And uh, when Mookie left town, uh, we needed to have another Mookie uh, stick around. Uh, well, that went right over my head. I always named my dogs after foods. My my doodle was named Haggis after the rather delicious Scottish delicacy. So. Um, Let's start at the beginning. What led you into medicine and did something specific spark your interest in, in gastroenterology and specifically hepatology? Yeah, th- thank you for the question, uh, Jonathan. I, you know, it, it was, what's very interesting is, is uh, when I uh, entered uh, medical school and, and uh, did residency, I, I was uh, really torn between a number of fields that I, that I developed great interest in, particularly uh, infectious diseases and, and, and hematology oncology. But during that time, during my residency, both were very heavily inpatient experiences with lots of incredibly ill patients. Uh, at the time, uh, AIDS had had, uh, had, had really uh, become a extraordinarily overwhelming uh, for, for, for all of us uh, taking care of, of those patients. We had no cures. We had no uh, interval, uh, really effective interval therapies. Similarly, I think on the inpatient uh, service for, uh, for hematology oncology, dealing with a lot of very sick bone marrow transplantation patients really uh, got me quite quite uh, uh, depressed. Um, and, and so I, I really wanted to find a, a happy medium, a field that offered, I think, a much more reasonable sort of prognosis for its patients, a chance to intervene and make a difference, but also the diversity, I think, of, of the intellectual pursuit um, uh, that GI and hepatology offered uh, uh, insofar as there are multiple organ systems uh, with multiple pathophysiologic processes and, and really the liver embodies that I think quite beautifully in terms of, of really being uh, representative of, of all the processes we see in, in medicine. The, the liver is in many ways a central processing unit for the rest of the body and, uh, and when it goes down, uh, much goes awry. And so trying to you know, really understand and, and, um, and think pathophysiologically was an enormously, I think, appealing dimension. Uh, that plus, I think the idea that one could do research 
in any of a number of areas as it related to the liver, including coming back to those same original interests of infectious diseases and hematology oncology, both of which have become interests of mine within the liver uh, in the form of hepatitis, viruses, and, and, and liver cancer. Like uh, my field in surgery, so much has happened during your career in, in hepatology, and we're going we're gonna to dig into that. Uh, so let's start with your research into viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis B and hepatitis C has been transformative. Can you talk us about, about these di- diseases and some of what you've uncovered? And if I might firstly say, although most of our audience are medical practitioners, we do have a lot of um, very interested lay people. So maybe you start off you know, at, gr- at the ground and then or at 30,000 feet and then zoom in to, uh, 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 to more detail. Uh, thank you for the question. So I, I think from uh, the, in thinking about, about hepatitis B and C, they are the easily most important uh, causes of chronic liver disease uh, due to viruses uh, worldwide. Um, uh, they are easily the leading cause of liver cancer uh, worldwide. Uh, the most important features of the two viruses are really that they, that they uh, far more often than not lead to chronic uh, infection. And, um, and, and, and with that chronic infection comes the smoldering liver injury that leads to fibrosis or scarring and uh, that ultimately culminates in the development of irreversible uh, fibrosis or cirrhosis. And, and then, of course, uh, the, the complications of liver failure and, and death from uh, pattocellular carcinoma or liver cancer result not long thereafter. Uh, so uh, with these as, as, as really uh, global epidemics and at, at the time really no curative therapies, this was uh, an, an extraordinarily, I think, important area uh, to get into from my vantage point. Uh, um, the, the attraction of the research there was that we could work directly with human samples uh, from our patients and, and go right to the causative agent of the disease and study that causative agent in our, in our research studies. And so in, in that regard, we were able to understand both what the virus did in relation to uh, its damage to the host uh, or target cell, uh, but also uh, understood what it was about the immune response to that virus, which ordinarily should clear it, that was failing in most instances and in, in, in culminating in a chronic infection state. And so it was really um, those questions that really drove my interest in investigating uh, those mechanisms of not just injury to the liver and and injury leading to scarring and fibrosis and 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 cirrhosis uh, and liver cancer, but but also understanding what about the immune response had uh, been subverted uh, by the virus, and and so that that was again much of the work that we did. Um, first, understanding how to help culture the virus, which had been a very difficult challenge early in the years of uh, hepatitis C research. But, but, but ultimately, once we did develop culture models collectively as a field, we were able to make a considerable headway in terms of understanding those interactions between the virus and the host that lead to, to uh, damage and, and disease. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm particularly proud of the fact that we uncovered mechanisms by which this virus uh, really uh, disarmed that immune response and promoted its own persistence and chronicity, uh, and uh, and then uh, you know uncovered I think mechanisms by which we could potentially um, uh, address not just this infection as a chronic viral infection, but but a number of other chronic viral infections which might work in a similar manner 
in terms of, again, uh, disabling that host immune response. And while, you know, you might feel ill when you initially have them, they can be pretty quiescent and just sort of hang around slowly, slowly causing damage. I'm trying to think of other examples in medicine where something can just sit there quietly, getting worse and worse and worse until it has a profound um, effect on the patient uh, and on the healthcare system. And, you know, people end up needing liver transplants. So it, it's impressive stuff. And that leads me on to my next question. Where are we with awareness of hepatitis, the availability of the ability to test for hepatitis and the treatments that are available to now head off liver failure? What can we do more of or what else can we do to save lives in this matter? Because like I said at the beginning, the advances in your field in, during the period of your career have been profound. Absolutely. I, I, I must say I'm privileged uh, to have been part of uh, this research effort that, uh, collectively speaking, uh, has produced a cure, a curative regimen for hepatitis C infection. This is, in fact, and, and this is not an overstatement, the first cure of chronic viral infection of humans. And, uh, and, and that impact is extraordinary. I, this was all really a triumph of the collective work in, in uh, molecular virology and in the development uh, in, in, in that regard of specific and targeted direct antiviral agents that uh, together as cocktails are able to produce cure of a chronic viral infection. So in that regard, uh, having been there for this transformative event, uh, and uh, applying uh, those transformations to our patients and, and changing their outcomes and natural history, we um, really have a, an enormous opportunity to, uh, to make a huge difference in terms of global public health. And so having solved the science, if you will, we're now in, at the level of, of implementation, of, of taking those solutions, those cures, and applying them to the world's chronically infected population. And, and so uh, how do we do that? And I, I think that the World Health Organization has set an ambitious goal of elimination of hepatitis C, and for that matter, hepatitis B, globally by the year 2030. And this will be accomplished really by a number of, I think, Im important steps that, that, uh, that governments and countries are going to have to take um, uh, onto themselves. They're simple, they're straightforward, uh, but they require, I think, political will uh, and uh, and the, the willingness to act. And so, uh, first, diagnosis. Uh, we need to screen and identify every one of those those infected uh, patients, uh, less than half of whom know that they are chronically infected. To your point about this being a silent disease, uh, these patients uh, do not readily come to attention. We must actively screen our population broadly uh, for the presence of chronic hepatitis C. And, and this would be aided and abetted, I think, by uh, test and treat approaches uh, where where we find hepatitis C. In our country, uh, we find uh, hepatitis C predominantly or, or um, in, a, in a very large uh, sense among uh, persons who inject drugs. Uh, I think we need to identify uh, a means of applying point of care testing to those areas and sites uh, where we can test and, uh, and make on the spot diagnoses coupled with the availability of uh, antiviral cocktails to administer to those patients to not only interdict their disease, but also to the break the cycle of transmission that, that occurs 
through um, that very same um, injection drug use, um, uh, which continues to perpetuate the epidemic uh, as we speak. I think the, uh, the other dimension of this, of course, is, is really making antiviral therapy accessible to all. Uh, we know that, that many countries with um, single-payer models, for instance, whose governments have decided to make hepatitis C elimination a priority, have found themselves on track to achieve those elimination goals. We are still working on that in this country. Um, we, uh, there, are, there is a very promising proposal set afoot by um, the White House presently to accomplish hepatitis C el elimination in the United States. Uh, and, and a big plank of this is, is, is making hepatitis C direct acting antiviral therapy readily accessible to all uh, through unique financing models. And then finally, I think it's, there's going to need to be an expansion of the workforce, if you will, the, the treating population, the treating community. We can't just rely on specialists uh, to uh, get this job done. There are far too many patients uh, out there uh, to rely entirely on hepatologists or infectious disease specialists. We're going to need to, to really spread that knowledge and education straight forward to uh, primary care providers, uh, to advanced practice providers, as well as even community health workers uh, and using the reach of video conferencing and other means of, of spreading that education uh, and that know-how uh, to those uh, sometimes far-flung areas where the epidemic uh, can be found. Uh, so collectively, I think it's a, it, it will require a concerted effort on those fronts, uh, but I you know, fully believe we can accomplish that goal of elimination uh, when we uh, put ourselves to it. So with uh, the appropriate funding, I think um, in this case, in our country, from the U.S. Congress, I think that will be a huge shot in the arm uh, to advance uh, this program. Finally, I would mention that that uh, no infectious disease of, of, of humans uh, has ever been fully eradicated uh, from the planet without a, an effective vaccine. We still don't have one yet for hepatitis C, but there are leads. And I think that, that again, part of that uh, elimination uh, plan will and should involve uh, research to support uh, development of a truly protective vaccine, um, hopefully exploiting the technologies that have been leveraged so effectively uh, for SARS-CoV-2 and, and COVID. Um, so that's uh, the story on the hepatitis C front. Hepatitis B uh, is also, again, a, a global scourge, uh, one that actually, in theory, we've had a vaccine, a protective vaccine for decades. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that vaccine has not been uniformly and universally applied, particularly at the at the point where the epidemic uh, is perpetuated, and that's specifically um, vertical transmission from mother to child. We uh, unfortunately do not have enough birth dose vaccine, which can prevent uh, that vertical transmission in the places that have the highest prevalence of Hep B, precisely where that vertical transmission. Uh, would be most expected to occur. So we still need to apply infrastructural and public health solutions uh, to that issue. But for those who are chronically infected, we still, of course, uh, need to do better than what we are now, which is uh, suppressive antiviral therapies using nucleoside analogs. We uh, need, uh, following the, the lead of hepatitis C's success, to develop um, you know, truly curative regimens for those persons who are chronically infected. And I'm confident that given those advances and the triumphs of, of molecular virology, uh, that we can apply uh, similar principles to a combined approach to treating a hepatitis B. It won't be easy,
but, uh, but I, I think uh, uh, with uh, applied collective uh, will and resources, uh, I, I believe we fully can get there as well. That was very eloquent. Thank you. I think that um, the, the prior point about awareness is key so that we can get uptake and there will be fewer people uh, with the disease and raising awareness so that people don't participate. <laughs> yeah, wishful thinking in risky behaviors. And for, you know, in the United Kingdom, where there's a very strong focus on health economics, um, uh, you can say, well, these treatments might be expensive, but the alternative is much more expensive for the healthcare system and tragic for the family. So, um, yeah, great point. So I mentioned the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, a very prominent and excellent organization. In 2021, you were the president. Tell us about some of this society's achievements during your tenure and what topics are the main threads under consideration nowadays? Yeah, thank you for uh, bringing that up. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm particularly proud of, of our professional organization, the ASLD, uh, and its uh, forward-looking stances uh, on uh, those matters of importance to not just us as, as, as hepatologists, uh, but, but of course to the community of, of patients who suffer from, from liver diseases. Um, during um, uh, my time, uh, which was a very unusual one, of course, I was, a, I was, if you will, a pandemic president, uh, we were forced into, uh, as the rest of the world was, into a, a series of adaptations and adjustments. Um, one of those adjustments was really, again, uh, you know, um, fitting ourselves into a, um, a digital world uh, with digital meetings. Um, and, and, and at some level, uh, that adaptation um, was quite was very nimbly done by our organization, which is real, I think, tribute to uh, the, um, the work, uh, the, the group at ASLD, who are an extraordinarily de dedicated uh, staff. Um, and, and what what we did was um, was really sort of uh, a pivot to um, not just a uh, a, a virtual uh, annual meeting uh, where scientific advancements uh, were presented as abstracts and, and presentations, but but also um, launched a series of of smaller webinars and uh, and seminars and smaller group meetings. Uh, that really uh, conveyed a considerably more more intimacy. So, really, in many ways, I think moving our organization into uh, into sort of uh, a world where smaller scale um, uh, meetings, uh, again between people from uh, far flung locations, were uh, was made uh, possible uh, during uh, that that pandemic. Uh, and we're particularly proud of the fact that 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 structure continues to endure even as it gets mixed in with. Uh, the gradual integration back into in-person meeting, which, uh, which of course, we all have welcomed. Um, from the vantage point of um, COVID itself, um, another thing that uh, we were particularly proud of was our, our really rapidly moving to become a, uh, a clearinghouse of, of evidence-based recommendations to the community of patients and the community of providers uh, caring for those patients with with uh, chronic liver disease or had undergone liver transplantation to provide resources regarding um, uh, best practices for um, dealing with COVID, whether that was COVID infection itself, uh, whether uh, it was safety practices around transmission, and and ultimately uh, around vaccination recommendations in a group of patients, um, many of whom are immune compromised because of their liver disease or liver transplant status. 
And this, um, this web-based uh, set of recommendations, which was of course a living, breathing document continuing to evolve seemingly weekly, was, was a trusted source of intelligence on, um, on, on really how those patients uh, could best grapple with and, and address COVID uh, in their communities and in their households. Um, and it was, uh, at least from the, the, the vantage point of, of understanding how many downloads there were of, of, from that site, an extraordinarily heavily utilized resource for the community. So we're particularly proud of, of how we handled uh, COVID in terms of getting, getting information and recommendations out to the community. We're also proud of, of, of um, our work in the area of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, we, um, we made uh, substantial strides in introducing uh, initiatives to enhance diversity, not just uh, among new members in the organization or trainee members in the organization, but as well um, uh, uh, to provide um, uh, a path uh, to uh, enhancing uh, the profile of um, members of the DEI community in uh, in our leadership positions, um, leadership positions throughout our committees, our special interest groups, uh, as well as our our, our governing uh, boards. Uh, so we're we're particularly proud of those efforts uh, in which we saw uh, great uh, increases in the numbers of of, of persons from underrepresented minorities um, uh, assuming um, again leadership positions as as chairs or co-chairs of committees, SIGs, uh, and, and even membership on the, on the governing board. From the, the, the vantage point as well of, of supporting research and investigators, um, we're also proud of the fact that, that un, under our watch, uh, the ASLD became a sponsor of um, the Harold Amos Minority Faculty Development uh, Award position that was specific to ASLD. That is to say the Haptology community was now and is now supporting um, a, an award for an investigator to join this prestigious program, which, um, which seeks to develop leaders from uh, the URM community um, uh, to, to train them uh, in a heavily mentored arrangement um, as, uh, as not only research leaders, but also leaders in, um, in, the, in, their, uh, in the clinical community. Um, uh, the, the, the program is, is intended to to really place promising uh, candidates in high profile positions within uh, their divisions and organizations so that we can uh, essentially populate that entire continuum along the career spectrum with visible evidence of, of uh, success and successful role models. So we're particularly proud of, of that as well. You asked about, uh, about some of the diseases uh, and uh, priorities we have moving forward. Um, we've had enormous success um, uh, with our guidelines, uh, particularly uh, guidelines um, that uh, that reflect uh, rapidly moving areas. I, I mentioned COVID a moment ago, but uh, but we had had um, an extremely successful guidance um, webpage uh, providing again up to the minute recommendations for hepatitis C management, which has been downloaded uh, literally millions of times by practitioners and and uh, and and patients alike. Uh, we are, are pivoting to do the same um, type of arrangement for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or, or uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis hepatitis or NASH. Um, we will soon have FDA approved agents um, in that space. Uh, and uh, we anticipate uh, there will be a flurry of activity soon thereafter uh, around implementation in patients. And 
and that being an even more complex uh, disorder uh, than even hepatitis C is, we're going to find a lot of need on the part of the community for guidance and, and uh, guidance that rapidly changes. And, and so we intend to have a web-based portal uh, that provides up-to-date evidence and recommendations for the community. Uh, another very important area that ASLD is, uh, is squarely focused on, uh, besides uh, NASH, which is, of course, uh, um, a major epidemic, is, is that which I referred to earlier, namely hepatocellular carcinoma, which is one of the fastest growing causes of, uh, of cancer death, uh, not just in the United States, but, but in the world. There will be, I think, a great deal of programming uh, and uh, initiatives uh, around hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, uh, and it's inherently multidisciplinary uh, nature uh, that, that uh, ASLD um, expects and plans to take the lead in, in terms of providing uh, digestible information for our community and, and certainly, again, updated information um, in a fast-moving area. Um, so we've, we've entered the world of web-based guidelines. Um, I think uh, printed uh, guidelines really don't meet uh, the moment. Uh, and I think uh, I think our nimble movement to uh, web-based guidance really, I think, is going to be the paradigm moving forward. Thank you very much for, for, for that very comprehensive answer. I talked a little bit earlier, I mentioned a little bit earlier about um, the final common pathway, a lot of, uh, certainly of the viral hepatitis, about transplantation. And you're part of the Transplant Center uh, Executive Committee at Mass General. Can you address a few issues about liver transplantation that garner your attention and maybe start with the availability and identification of donors, the role of living donors, what a wonderful gift that is, and the use of split livers? Again, most of our audience are, you know, doctors and such like, but some are interested members of the lay public, and this is a chance to raise awareness. So have at it. Yes. Um, thank you uh, for bringing that point up. Uh, I, th I think that... Uh, the, the gift of liver transplantation you know, remains as such, uh, given that it is a precious resource you know, for all of those patients sitting on transplant lists and all those patients with end-stage liver disease who face a limited prognosis. Uh, we are far from having replacement organs available for, for that, that entire community at need. We only transplant about 9,000 uh, donor organs a year of, in, in regards to liver transplantation, and, uh, and there are far, far more patients waiting or even succumbing on the wait list. So with uh, that limitation in mind, um, uh, we are trying to squeeze as much as we can out of the donor supply, and that includes the use of living donors, as you just alluded to, uh, uh, which um, historically have accounted for a small percentage of, the, of that total of, of 9,000. Um, several hundred a year, and and part of that is owing to the fact that that, that it is still a a challenging procedure with uh, real morbidity and and a very low but but finite mortality rate as well. Uh, advances in in technique um, uh, have have really improved the uh, continue to improve the outcome for for living donors, um, and and I think uh, we have seen. Uh, real evidence that 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 recipients of of living donor liver transplants actually fare uh, better um, than uh, those um, who receive uh, deceased donor liver uh, transplants um, in terms of of looking at at overall um, uh, prolonged uh, and extended survival rates. Uh, so uh, I think properly planned, I think a living donor scenario should be considered and explored 
wherever it's possible. So we cannot um, overemphasize that enough in terms of, of, of making the public know about the, uh, the potential for a living donor uh, option. Uh, I think another dimension of this that, that it also deserves um, uh, a consideration is, is really maximizing the use of deceased donor organs that have historically not been used. And these have included patients who have, uh, donors who have succumbed after cardiac death as opposed to brain death. Uh, with cardiac death, it's long been assumed that because of the downtime, if you will, of, of loss of blood pressure and blood flow, that uh, the liver has taken a hit and, and therefore isn't going to function as well. And, and there's objective evidence to support that that may be true in a subset of cases. But, but there have been real advances in, um, in, in perfusion technology that have um, allowed those organs to be um, perfused uh, after procurement of the organ uh, in that setting to minimize the risk of, of uh, injury of that uh, allograft organ once it's implanted into the recipient. Historically, there, there have been uh, challenges with uh, bile duct complications. Uh, we've seen um, really a, a, a substantially reduced frequency of those uh, issues uh, using these uh, perfusion devices, which essentially flush out those organs and potentially reduce uh, some of the toxic uh, metabolites and intermediates that can cause some of the injury that I just described. So we're seeing real promise potentially for using a donor pool that has historically not been tapped into. And so we need to, to uh, uh, I think, with the uh, assistance of uh, perfusion technologies, um, really explore uh, expanding uh, that donor source uh, considerably. And, uh, another donor source that should also be considered would be those patients who we historically would, would have never considered uh, who had hepatitis C uh, infection in the donor organ. These are often young persons who succumb to opioid um, overdose, unfortunately, um, but whose organs were not used um, largely because of of concerns of transmitting hep C, of course, to the recipient, particularly when the recipient was already um, uninfected. But the, the availability of those curative uh, antiviral regimens I described earlier uh, has now made the unthinkable thinkable. And, and in fact, not just thinkable, but, but now, given the success of those DAAs when applied in those uh, donors uh, into um, uninfected recipients, the uniform success we're seeing in terms of clearing out the infection has now made, again, a, uh, a, a rather substantial um, uh, reservoir of organs available for use that had uh, previously been discarded. Uh, so we're, we're making as much uh, resourceful use of, of these, uh, these organs as, as well as we can. And I think the other point to make here is that technology is such that we are also, of course, working on uh, on advances in the xenotransplantation front, of course, using uh, uh, organs from other species and, and solving that the species crossing barrier by really altering um, the some of the surface proteins on those uh, donor organs, say, for instance, uh, pig organs, to allow them to be transplanted without being rapidly rejected by a human recipient. So we're not there yet. But, um, but there, are, there have been significant advances in terms of proof of concept to show that that can, in fact, potentially uh, work um, using, uh, using uh, um, genetically modified animal organs. And, and then we're making advances on the stem cell front as well in terms of, of really um, expanding 
liver cells from, from stem cells uh, to provide a pool of an inexhaustible pool of, of, of liver cells that could then uh, potentially be transplanted to provide support for a failing organ. Um, so we're seeing uh, 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 progress across many fronts. It's a touchy subject. So we've got an aging population. We've got recognition of other diseases like NASH. We've got a failure to, despite amazing technology to detect and treat viral hepatitis. We've got a growing number of people that need care. And I've heard it said that the, you know, I, I trained in Britain, but I practiced for many, many years in the United States. What are we going to do about the massive cost of delivering care in your specialty? This is, this is a, a, a huge conundrum for, for all of us, um, because here we are pushing those advances that um, in, in many ways are going to um, accelerate the cost of, of care. So I think in, in all this, uh, we can't uh, apply uh, these solutions um, necessarily universally, but are going to need to be much more savvy about their more prudent and selective utilization, right? So I think we're going to have to do a whole lot about, uh, about understanding um, best case scenarios or scenarios uh, uh, for which these, um, again, increasingly expensive technologies are best or most effectively applied rather than, than applying a simple sort of um, one size fits all approach. Um, so this is going to take a lot of work uh, on the part of, you know, uh, us as, as scientists and clinicians uh, to solve that issue, because I think it would be remiss for us to, um, to just simply uh, develop, develop, develop without an understanding of, of, of how we, uh, how we pay for it all. Yeah, it, it really is a conundrum. And, you know, people who, like you on the, the the bleeding edge of science it, it's very frustrating um, realizing that some of these things will not be rolled out so i mentioned in my uh, introduction that you've co-authored and or authored an astonishing number of papers across your career topics such as viral load in hepatitis c implications of cancer therapy acute liver failure in the elderly and glutamyl transferase elevations in patients with covid19 so this is two questions in one Give us a brief description of your COVID work and of all your many publications, which are you most proud of and why? I'll start with the COVID uh, and thank you for the question. Um, I, I think one of the, the things that we, uh, we were most interested in was, was trying to understand uh, early on what uh, some of the derangements in the innate immune response were for patients with, with um, COVID. And this was back in the, the very beginning when uh, so many of them, of course, were being hospitalized. And, uh, and what we learned there was that there were distinct differences in, in, uh, uh, in the interferon responses, of which, of course, the, these are innate antiviral uh, molecules that our bodies and immune systems put out uh, in response to infection and as a means of potentially controlling infection. But uh, in, in some instances, uh, what we saw was that those patients who, who did poorly in the hospital had higher levels of, of a certain interferon called type one interferons uh, like alpha and beta, which, uh, which then were associated with, with more adverse critical care outcomes um, uh, and, and, and even death. Uh, and, and, and so um, we turned to look at a, a related group of interferons called type three interferons, um, uh, best typified by interferon lambda, and, and found that, that this group of interferons, which typically does not trigger the uh, type of inflammatory response that the type one interferons do 
um, was also uh, active in patients, um, particularly in those patients who had more limited courses of, of disease. So uh, that set of findings uh, um, suggesting that there, there potentially could be a role for non-inflammatory, if you will, interferons in control of COVID uh, led us to a randomized trial of that very same interferon lambda, the type 3 interferon, in, 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 um, in hospitalized patients with not ICU level disease, but, but uh, milder disease at entry. And we found uh, in that trial a, an antiviral effect of the interferon lambda compared to placebo and a down um, an improvement in some of the inflammatory cytokines that uh, are, are often seen in, in persons with, with, with COVID. So that coupled with, um, with larger trials of outpatients have suggested that, that uh, interferon lambda uh, could be a very viable way uh, moving forward, uh, particularly if, if um, we find new um, um, strains and uh, variants of, of, of COVID develop in, in the future. Um, uh, the, the, the beauty of the interferons is that, is that they work uh, not so much in a, in a virus-specific or virus-sequence-specific way, but, but work generally on the immune response to enhance clearance. And so, um, so our hope here is that, is that perhaps this, this remains, in front of Lambda, that is, a, a viable option moving forward should we, um, should we uh, need it uh, for future uh, developments in this, in this very active space. When your other question was related to what work we are uh, proud of, um, I, I think some of the work, uh, I'll, I'll cite a couple of examples. One is, is our initial work in hepatitis C that uh, demonstrated that hepatitis C is not just a liver disease, but we found a number of years back that, that hepatitis C is the causative agent of a condition that we call cryoglobulinemia, a specific type of cryoglobulinemia known as type 2 cryoglobulinemia. And I think that that um, that very specific association uh, really um, not only was a, a novel and finding of of causation, but just as importantly, I think it revealed to us that that hepatitis C uh, is not just a liver disease; it is a systemic uh, disturbance and disorder. Uh, and uh, many many studies since have shown that hepatitis C not only causes cryoglobinemia, which in turn can cause um, um, systemic uh, injury, including renal injury uh, and, and nervous system injury, but uh, can cause uh, increased risk for cardiovascular uh, disease, cerebrovascular disease. And there's even some evidence to support an increased risk of extrahepatic malignancies. And, um, and, and so the understanding then that this is really more a, a kind of a, a systemic disturbance, likely an inflammatory disturbance, that, that, that promotes um, uh, a whole variety of manifestations, I think was an important uh, outgrowth of, of the work that uh, started with back years ago. I think another important backend, if you will, discovery from our group was, was the very early demonstration, and I, and I mentioned this briefly uh, a moment ago in terms of thinking about the use of, of infected donor organs in uninfected recipients, but, but it, was, it was the first demonstration that we could successfully transplant infected donor organs such as kidneys, hearts, and livers, uh, to name several, into uninfected recipients using a very protocolized uh, approach to delivering antiviral therapy in those recipients uh, using either preemptive uh, approaches, so given uh, uh, at the time of uh, call to the operating room for the transplant, 
and, and continued thereafter, um, or, uh, or at least administered very early after the transplant experience. And in each of those instances, uh, the demonstration that not only was this safe, uh, but, but also effective in terms of uh, rendering those patients um, completely cleared of hepatitis C and with no adverse impact on the success of the allograft. Indeed, uh, we were able to demonstrate that uh, at least at the time it was introduced, um, marked changes in waiting times for the most critically ill of patients. We, we demonstrated this in, in particularly in the heart transplant population. So those things, um, you know, again, uh, sort of taking the advances that we had made in, in the hepatitis C field and applying them to brand new scenarios um, that have now extended, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the use of donor organs further with an ability to sort of transform that wondrous development in, into even greater gain uh, for patients uh, in ways that, uh, that, that, that really we would never have imagined earlier. Okay, well, thanks. I can imagine with 600 papers to choose from, it must be very, very difficult. So my final question for you, Ray, if you were granted three wishes by a magical genie to improve the care of the patients you see, what would they be? So for my chronic liver disease patient population, uh, really uh, uh, much of this is, is going to be uh, implementation. Uh, and so if, if I could get access, universal access of all of my patients to screening for not only the existence of, say, for instance, chronic hepatitis B or chronic hepatitis C, but as well screening and surveillance for liver cancer on, a, on an ongoing basis, I think that would be an extraordinarily important advance. Similarly, I think access for my patients to curative antiviral therapies uh, would be an, an extraordinarily important dimension of, again, achieving elimination in, in the group of patients like I come in contact with. I think the development of a, of a, a curative regimen for hepatitis B is something that we can accomplish in our lifetime. Um, it will take more work, as I suggested earlier, but it is something that I would aspire to for the, the many, many millions of patients who are um, uh, really saddled with having to be on suppressive antiviral therapy with no clear endpoint uh, in sight. And the development, I think, of a, of a, um, a truly protective hepatitis C vaccine, I think, would round out um, my wish list for, for uh, viral hepatitis. One other uh, area, I think... Um, that I think will be very important um, that I would love to see uh, applied to my patients as a big wish would be the development of an antifibrotic class of therapies. And these therapies would could help roll back the relentless and insidious progression of fibrosis to cirrhosis and, and, and even to liver cancer, as I described earlier. And so an antifibrotic approach in those patients, for instance, who don't necessarily have a virus you can cure um, these might be patients with uh, metabolic syndrome and NASH who have fibrosis. I would love to be able to roll back their fibrosis with a antifibrotic um, strategy that not only completely changes the natural history of their disease, but, but will ultimately be chemopreventive for, um, for liver cancer. I have every confidence that uh, liver cancer is a consequence of advanced fibrosis. So, um, so those are my wishes uh, for my patients and, and, and those that I come in contact with. Well, given the amazing work that you've done thus far, I think there's a pretty good chance that you'll be involved in making those wishes come true. 
Folks, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank uh, Professor Raymond Chung for being with us today, for sharing your breadth of knowledge and for the very comprehensive and precise answers you've given. I shall certainly, as my friend says, go to bed less dumb. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It, it was my pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much. So, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the EMJ podcast and like us on social media. The people who know tell me that helps. If you join us next week, we'll have another fantastic episode for you. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.